Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome to our fourth FT Science Show. Today we'll be talking, among other things, about chemistry, tuberculosis and children's developing senses of fairness and equity. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. We welcome back Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council, as our studio guest. Hello, Diana, and thanks for coming in again. Good morning. We're also joined down the line by Richard Horton, editor of The Lancet. Welcome, Richard. Hello, Clive. Hello. And the FT Pharmaceuticals correspondent, Andrew Jack. Hello, Hello. Let's start with Richard and The Lancet. What are your current preoccupations, Richard, amongst all the big medical issues that the journal covers? Right now, we're trying to have a focus on a disease that causes huge amounts of disability and death around the world, but is incredibly neglected, and that's the old disease of tuberculosis. In one way, we're having great success. We're curing more people with TB than ever before. Over the last decade or so, well over 30 million people with TB have been cured. But every year, uh, there are 9 million new cases and almost 2 million people die. And they don't need to die and they don't actually need to get infected either. So what we're trying to do is to draw together the best available scientists in TB, the best evidence that we can. And last week, we launched a report in Geneva at the World Health Assembly, which tried to assemble all of that information and to make a case for greater funding, greater energy, greater enthusiasm, greater political commitment around eliminating TB, which could be done by 2050 if we put our minds to it. Really eliminate TB. I mean, it's a very difficult germ to tackle, isn't it, from the scientific point of view? The antibiotics have to be taken for several months faithfully so that resistance doesn't occur. A TB vaccine, the only one we've got is 80, 90 years old. Isn't it scientifically a very difficult target? Well, you put your finger on exactly some of the challenges. But if you look at the way, for example, the world's scientific and pharmaceutical community responded, admittedly, to a simpler organism, H1N1, swine flu, a vaccine was produced in a matter of weeks. And we believe, and the best scientists in the world believe, that if you put that kind of investment into TB, you could design a pipeline of drugs, which would be better than the the current available medicines we have. You could get closer to getting a vaccine. uh, And you really could also strengthen health systems, which is the really critical issue, strengthen health systems so that you can get the laboratory capacity to diagnose TB, get services rolled out to people with TB. And by 2050, you know, Clive, you actually could eliminate it. You really could get very, very close. And by elimination, we don't mean eradicating it completely like smallpox. We mean getting it down to such a small incidence, less than one in a million people by 2050, that there effectively would be no more epidemics of transmission. That's the target. Andrew, do you think Richard's being over-optimistic? Well, I think clearly there's a huge amount of money 
that's going to be required, but also a, a rethink not only by the drug companies, obviously for them, TB is a very modest market, so there aren't really the financial incentives, but also, and I, I wonder what you re- think, Richard, but the scientific and academic community, I was struck at you know, how laborious and slow it can be even to grow up sputum samples. So actually for research scientists who need regular publications and so on, it's actually quite a difficult disease to you know, get to those milestones and succeed in delivering and therefore having academic advancement. It's a huge problem. Actually, the academic community in TB is one of its own worst enemies. It's still a bit of a hangover from the old um, sort of colonial times, the sort of pith helmet uh, uh, times of of tropical medicine. What we need is the kind of social movement around TB that we've seen so successfully built up around HIV AIDS. If we had a community of, of activists in TB like we've had over the last 20 years in HIV, we could really force political change. If you look at what made breast cancer and HIV top political and scientific priorities. It hasn't been the academic community so much. It's been an alliance between civil society organisations, charities and the academic community to bring pressure to bear. And TB, unfortunately, as Clive pointed out, is still very much a 19th century disease. And we need to drag it into the 21st century and inject some excitement into it. I think HIV was scientifically exciting because it was new. There was almost a macho challenge for industry and scientists to attack HIV, whereas TB and also malaria, which we haven't yet mentioned, are sort of old. And you're doing a lot, Richard, with your colleagues to reinvigorate interest. Diana, what what do you think? I mean, I agree with Richard and Andrew. There's huge uh, challenge, in, especially in finding the money. But I also think there's an opportunity, and a lot of research tells us that younger scientists are actually put off by the macho-ness, the competitiveness of always going for the new and are troubled by... Uh, the fact that there are such big challenges out there that science hasn't addressed and that they don't want to move on from. So if you look at some of the surveys that young scientists have put off entering science research and the delivery of science by the lack of altruism in science, that actually trying to tackle TB is a way of attracting in a younger generation who might think about the challenges and the rewards from science quite differently and be much more linked in with that movement from civil society. So I think it's potentially quite an exciting campaign, Richard, and I'm definitely on your side for that. And I think it would attract a different alliance of people supporting science. Particularly attract um, more young women to go into science and medicine. Can I just pick up on Diana's point? Because I think she's said something there which is incredibly important, and it's actually a generational change uh, in the attitudes of young people to global issues. I'm in my late 40s, and when I was at uh, university, people were interested in politics, but they weren't interested in global health issues at all, really. Now, if you go into medical schools uh, and universities, what you actually see are people are incredibly turned on by these challenges. Campaigns like Make Poverty History and Live Aid and so on have really energised a generation uh, to thinking about the consequences of globalisation. And that is having an impact on science. It's making these global challenges that face the world really important motivating forces for young people to go into science. So I think Diana's absolutely right. And it's something that those of us who are a little older need to pay a great deal of attention to, to sustain this, this remarkable response. Well, one of the older and more traditional sciences, which will, I hope, help with the the campaign against TB, is chemistry. And during last week's podcast, we were discussing the future of university science. 
and in particular whether the traditional single subject science subjects could survive or how they'd survive. And I think chemistry really exemplifies this issue because the number of applicants to undergraduate chemistry courses is rising, yet several chemistry departments are in various degrees of financial distress. For example, Southampton's highly regarded School of Chemistry has had to make five academics redundant. I asked John Evans, head of Southampton Chemistry, what was happening. The change in in student numbers for chemistry follows a a long period of of, uh, reduction through the 90s and into the 2000s. And there's a lot of effort being put in from government funding, from uh, the learned societies, from university staff themselves, and for scientists in research uh, laboratories to try to show the excitement that, that we believe the subject has. And the combination of all of these has managed to turn around the interest that students have for, for chemistry. It's been fun sometimes to interview students coming here who've shown their excitement in recognising that chemistry is one of those disciplines that can change, change civilization, can give us a st- sustainable technology for the future. When you're looking at the the teaching of chemistry and the understanding of chemistry, those aspects together with analytical chemistry are, are key. They are the core um, skills that we present and the score, core skills that we can offer to, to other, to other uh, problems. But I think research activities um, are a much broader base these days. Uh, the research that I do, I can only carry out that research because I'm also involved with research with physicists electronics engineers who can create the instrumentation that we use. And the aspects of chemistry that are growing particularly now are often related to the, the interface between biology and chemistry. Chemistry is, is marching into biology, showing its kind of methodology for synthesis, its methods for an analysis, and its, its way of understanding science at a molecular level. That is one of the growth points that I see we will, we will have. Richard, what do you think as someone looking at it from the medical science point of view? I think looking at the, the, the position of some of the physical sciences right now, and one should include physics along with chemistry, you're seeing actually a, a crisis. Um, science goes in fashions almost, waves. The big science of 40 or 50 years ago was physics to a lesser extent chemistry and now it's the life sciences in particular genetics and unfortunately when you look at the life sciences often the physical sciences which underpin so much of life science research are taken for granted they're neglected and they're they're neglected and taken for granted because they are so hidden and I think what behoves those of us in the life science area is an obligation a responsibility to do more to advocate on behalf of our colleagues in the physical sciences to show just how critical they are. To some extent, I did think we have to share in the responsibility here. I'll give you an example. We're working with the Institute of Physics at the moment on a report to try and show the contribution that physics makes to medicine and to health in Britain. And physics is going through a very similar crisis. It's it's seeing a decline in recruitment into the subject, uh, both at school and at university. It's seeing threats to its research base. And unless the whole of the scientific community comes together to show why these subjects are so critical, not just for our, our, our economy, but also for our well-being and health in the population. I think if we don't do that, we will, we will hang and we will not succeed. 
chemistry is crucial and it's in it's interesting to see how all of the university departments have made these links um, across to other sciences and to other disciplines, so much so that actually we are talking about the teaching of the chemical sciences. And I think that's a, a trend and an attractive trend for young people. But there is a core message here that it's actually, to be a scientist in the future, you've got to buckle down and do at least one of the core disciplines in some depth and chemistry is one of those essential disciplines, particularly if we pick up the previous story on TB and how important that is going to be. So I'm sympathetic, but I think there's some creative thinking to be done. I think now we'll move on to Science Magazine and over to Robert Frederick in Washington. Thanks, Clive. Almost everyone knows of someone who is quite wedded to a certain sense of justice or what is fair, But in trying to understand where those ideals of fairness come from, scientists have found that what children consider fair changes as they grow up. While previous research has mostly focused on very young children, in a paper published on Friday in Science, Bakhtil Tungodden and colleagues looked at adolescents for two reasons. Tungodden is an economist at the Norwegian School of Economics and Business Administration, the NHH. One is that a more recent neurobiological research shows that the brain develops a lot in adolescence, more than we thought previously. And secondly, that in adolescence, you face a lot of new social experiences. And we wanted to see whether these two factors really had an influence on the moral motivation. So, Tungaden and his team recruited hundreds of children in Norway in grades 5 through 13 and had them play a game that, at first, meant they worked to earn an income. So they have this pretty impressive procedure where the children are on the internet. Bill Harbaugh is an economist at the University of Oregon and is not affiliated with the study. And this maybe hits a little bit too close to home for some people. They've got a choice between doing their job, which is a pretty simple task involving number identification, or getting distracted by a fun internet website with games and so forth on it. Then the students' scores were multiplied by either a low price or a high price, randomly. Students were then paired with someone at the same grade level, and one of them was made the dictator and got to decide how the total income of both students should be split, knowing what each student had earned and whether each student had been lucky and gotten the higher price for his or her work. Again, study author Bachtil Tungodden. I mean, they could take everything if they wanted to, or they could give away everything, or they can do something in between. What's most important in this experiment, the pattern of behavior. Because it's not obvious here that the fair thing to do is to divide equally. Maybe the fair thing to do is to say that you should get in accordance with your contribution. So the guy who produced the most should get the most. Or maybe it should be in accordance with earnings. Also saying that, well, if you were lucky, it's fine. It's your luck. The results? With increasing age, children's sense of fairness changed from strict egalitarianism, finding all inequalities unfair, to meritocratism, where inequalities were fine so long as they were based on individual production, not luck set by the random high or low price. There's a huge change between 5th grade and 13th grade. Again, Bill Harbaugh of the University of Oregon. Imagine if that change went on a little bit more than it does. We would live in a very different society with respect to popular support for welfare programs and so on than the one that we live in now. But curiously, in every age group, there was an equal share of what study author Bakhtil Tungaden describes as libertarians. The basic feature of libertarianism, what we call libertarianism here, 
is that, well, people should be held responsible for what caused their earnings. So people should be held responsible for how productive they are and also responsible for their luck part. But the fact that we see a very stable level of libertarians shows one very important thing with our study, and that is that our study is not simply a story about people accepting inequalities as they grow older because they are smarter. Because what we see is not a move from a simple view to a more complex view. So this is much more complex than just a simple move from a simple fairness ideal to a more complex one. So it's possible that these children change their beliefs as they get older. Again, Bill Harbaugh of the University of Oregon. And some of them become less libertarian, other ones become more libertarian. But we don't know that. I think it's best to take the results you know, at face value and say that the proportion of people having this preference doesn't change very much. And that you know, supports the argument. You don't want to say this is genetic, but it supports the argument that that's sort of a fundamental preference that people have, despite the huge difference in people's life experiences and what they're taught in school that happens over the period that they're looking at here, over the age groups that they're looking at, right? It's, it's really a striking result. But both Harbaugh and study author Tung Aden say that it is unclear whether the results, based on students from Norway, may be extrapolated to the rest of the world. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert, and thanks to AAAS and Science. I think that paper illustrates the way economics and the social sciences are increasingly adopting the methods of what used to be called the hard sciences. Um, I don't know, Richard, whether The Lancet is now taking that sort of paper more seriously? Well, you know, we have been getting interested in the intersection between the biological sciences and behaviour. And it was very interesting there that one of the commentators was was keen to point out maybe this wasn't genetic in, in terms of attitudes to egalitarianism or meritocracy. But actually, um, during the past five years or so, there's a lot of research that's been done looking at how there are biological underpinnings to our political behaviours. I remember a paper published in Science a couple of years ago showing that those who were more conservative tended to be more fearful of certain threats. And these could be, these patterns of behavior uh, had a likely genetic basis. Those who were more liberal were less fearful of different types of stimuli. So we shouldn't rule out the biological when we're thinking about how we respond to certain events in society. Well, thanks very much. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Do join us again next week to hear about the most compelling stories in the world of science and research. Richard, Diana, Andrew, and Robert in Washington, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Villatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.